Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast with Nick and the Doctor. Excited to have you with us here today. We've got a really interesting subject to bring you. We're going to talk with Chris Powell from Houndsman XP, and we're going to talk about, some people probably consider it a touchy subject, we're going to talk about hound hunting and deer hunting conflicts. And so we're going to tackle this from a few different directions. Uh, we're going to hear, uh, obviously, the hound side of the story. We'll talk about the deer side of the story. And it's not all conflicts all the time, but they do arise. And we certainly, it's something we hear about and are often asked about uh, by our members. And so uh, it'd be cool to talk to Chris and get his point of view. Looking forward to doing that. But before we do that, let's say hello to a man that's celebrating the recent completion of his honeydew list, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. I'm telling you, it is time to celebrate and spend 100% of my focus on hunting season. So I'm glad to be done. Well, my, my first thought, Mike, is the listeners who are well aware of your celebrity status are probably <laughs> a little bit surprised that someone of your ilk actually has a honeydew list. Well, I mean, I, I'm one of those people. I mean, I didn't come from much. Actually, I came from nearly nothing. And I've had the luck, I guess I'll say, of being around some very intelligent people who were willing to share and their skill and mentor me as I came up. And so I've done a lot of unique things for someone that is in my position. I mean, I've taken an engine out of a car, uh, put a new one in, put a new transmission in a car. I can, I can actually uh, shingle roofs. I can do masonry work. I can tile and um, I have fairly adept at carpentry. So I've had a lot of people uh, put their faith in me to do things or, you know, some really unique jobs I've had. And so I have a skill set of I'm not going to pay somebody to do something that I can do myself. I'm smiling the whole time you're talking about this. I, I, I've done all those things too, except I don't, I've never pulled an engine out of a car, but I certainly remember my first car was a little white Ford Escort. And the way the engine was configured in that thing, I was able to do most anything that I needed to do. The electronic systems were not nearly, I mean, if I open the hood on my Tundra right now, it's just, I'd immediately close it right away because I have no idea even what I'm looking at there anymore because things have changed so much. But uh, no, I think to your point, uh, yeah, you and I grew up at a time where you, I, I, I can never remember my dad hiring anybody <laughs> to do to do any project. And because of that, I uh, had a chance to learn a bunch of things uh, just like you did. And so that comes with great pride, but it also comes with a lot of B-team reports, a lot of trial and error. And so as you're telling those stories, I was thinking of things that I've done, and I, I know some of the stories of things you've done. There's a lot of trial and error and blood, sweat, and tears, and, and sometimes you just got to have a good sense of humor, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of you start the job and realize that you can't finish it because you might not have a certain piece of equipment or you run into an unforeseen obstacle or barrier that you're going to have to deal with and you might not know how to deal with it. So a lot of my jobs are stop and start, but I think that's why we talked about there's so much pride in the fact when you complete that job, you've done it. And hopefully, you know, if you're like I am, it's done correctly or better than it was the first time. So uh, I think that in this day and age that that's something that we should celebrate and be proud of because it does it does take a lot of work, but that work I think is very rewarding at the end of the day. The other thing is we didn't have YouTube, you know, when we learned our lessons. I mean, nowadays, I just I had told the story about putting the 
the uh, chimney through the roof of the cabin. And really, I had watched several YouTube videos and picked out the one that I liked the best. And I had it handy there in case I ran into something that I didn't remember, you know, that that person said. So that's that's there's no excuse really for anybody not to at least jump in and try to do things on their own. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, I was thinking of other, we have, we aren't doing a B team report today, but I had thought of something that I did recently that would be a good one. And carpentry for me has always been the one because you have to, one thing about carpentry is you always have to think like a couple steps ahead. And so that's the hard part. Cause I can, I can't tell you how many times or how many pieces of lumber or whatnot that I ruined because I didn't think ahead. And, uh, so that's the one that's always seems to get me. Yeah, I'm well, I avoid the ones that that actually give me trouble, which is some serious electrical work and serious plumbing work. So I don't really don't really mess with those two at all. Yeah, yeah. I guess we got to know know our limitations. But uh, hey, and also you're back to school soon, huh? Yeah, actually less than a week. I'm I'm back at it again. So that's good. I mean, it was it was nice being off for the first time since I was 16 years old for two and a half months. And so I'm ready to get back to it because I do love my job. All right. There you have it. Hey, folks, next episode will be an Ask NDA Anything episode. So get your questions in. Uh, we've had a few come in already, which is kind of a reflection of the time of year it is. We're talking about things like back to school and end of summer, and that means deer season, and that means people are thinking about it. So not as difficult to get Ask NDA Anything questions this time of year, but send them in. Nick at DeerAssociation.com. All right. Let's go ahead and get to our interview with Chris Powell. my pleasure to welcome Chris Powell to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Chris is the founder and host of Houndsman XP podcast. Uh, he's a lifelong hunter and houndsman and a retired conservation officer in Indiana. Uh, he's going to be talking today about hunting with hounds. We're going to get into maybe some touchy subjects, deer hound conflict, deer hunter, hound hunter conflicts, those types of things, uh, and being good neighbors, that type of thing. So uh, I also was just interviewed for Chris's podcast here recently. So we decided to do one each for each audience and we think there'll be a lot of value in it. So Chris, thank you for being on the show. It's great to have you and please fill in some details. Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah. So thanks for having me on the, the NDA podcast, the coffee and deer podcast. I mean, it's a great honor and it's, it's great opportunity for me to talk about hound hunting and represent what we do to an audience that uh, may not know a lot about it or wants to know more about it. So really appreciate that. We launched our podcast, the Houndsman XP podcast in 2019. And uh, we run, we run three episodes a week on that podcast. We typically our Monday show is a little deeper dive into some conservation issues and some technical stuff about, uh, uh, dog care and, and things like that. However, our Wednesday show is also, it gets technical on dog training and we interview everybody from bird dogs to police dogs to houndsmen. You know, we're always going to stay focused on the hound aspect of it and try to bring value back to that subject. But there's so much for, for all of us to benefit from by engaging with other um, you know, niche groups that, that may 
hunt with a German short hair pointer or, you know, a versatile dog or a blood tracking dog or whatever it is. And, and dog behavior is pretty much, it's pretty much the same. So we, we take a deep dive on that. We, we showcase legendary houndsmen. We showcase wildlife professionals. Um, we did, we try to encompass anything that would affect our ability and our freedoms to free cast hounds and be involved in that bigger conversation on wildlife management. And that's really why we founded the podcast was because coming out of my professional career, I retired in 2018 from the state of Indiana. I think you mentioned I was a conservation officer. You know, I had the opportunity to sit in on a lot of those meetings and see what the, um, the image of the houndsman was and how a lot of people if they didn't actually know what it was, then they could make it up. And that's because we weren't talking about it. Our, our group was so uh, clandestine and trying to stay under the radar that we actually lost control of the narrative about the values of hounds, what they can do uh, for wildlife management and how we, how we add value to the hunting community as houndsmen. And so we started this podcast to take that narrative back and, and to get the right message out there. A lot of different podcasts were trying to talk about it and they weren't doing a bad job, but there was, there were just some things that were lacking. So that's what we're doing over at the Houndsman XP podcast. Well, the first question I got to ask you is how in the world do you get three out per week? Because the doctor and I struggle to do one every two weeks. So you're, you're really working <laughs> at it. Yeah, it's a uh, Houndsman XP is uh, it's an actual company, and uh, I've got I've got host content providers that that are contracted with us. All of them. I mean, I've got I want to talk about my team. I got to. I've got a wildlife biologist who is a um, uh, a sidehound guy that that lives in southern New Mexico. So he's he's running salukis and greyhounds and and stuff like that. I've got two of the top dog trainers in the United States that, that are on, on my team. One is Chad Reynolds. He's a top animal trainer in the world. Uh, he's a veteran of the, the United States army, uh, from Utah. Heath Hyatt is over in uh, Virginia. He's a, he's a regional trainer for, he works for Christiansburg police department, but he's certified by the state of Virginia as a master trainer. Um, and then we've got Bryce Matthews, who is a competition raccoon hunter that that uh, travels all over the country and and does stuff like that so I, i'm really proud of the team they're very qualified i'd put my team up against anybody in the in the outdoor industry because of their credentials and and the values they can bring to the show and we all share the same goal yeah and folks you can visit uh, houndsmanxp.com the website we'll give these again at the end places you can sure. find uh, the work that chris is doing and i've spent some time looking at his team as well and some other things and it is very impressive and i know your show is also quite popular and so we're hoping that our deer hunting audience uh, can get something from this as well and bridge some of the gaps that, that we're going to talk about here so uh let's talk about just sort of the passion of hound hunters or dog hunters in general. And so you've got even right here on the show, you got three dog guys. I mean, the, the doctor there, we tease him whenever someone talks about dogs on the show, cause he perks up and jumps right into it. He's been a, a dog trainer and hunter for a long time. I mentioned 
in my youth, especially growing up raising red tick hounds and, and even my most recent dog was a red tick hound, even though she was more of a pet. Um, and of course your passion for it. So let's, we, we understand the passion, but maybe for people that, that never really got into that, let's talk about the passion of, of hound hunters, uh, in general, uh, especially for the people that may have never done it. Yeah, it's definitely something that you've got to be fully invested in. I grew up, I've, you know, I, I hunt all kinds of things. I've waterfowl hunted. I've trained my own retrievers, um, deer hunted, turkey hunted, you know, all of that stuff. Um, the, the deal with houndsmen is it's a 365 day a year commitment when, when you take on the responsibility that, that this either this, this dog is going to be effective at his job. You've got training, you've got feeding, you've got vet bills, you've got, I mean, you can't, you can't put him in the gun safe and pull him out three weeks before season and side him in. I mean, you're, you're, you're caring mm. for this dog all the time. And most houndsmen have more than one. Um, we're very, we've wanted to do a podcast just on the fiscal impact of being a houndsman but we're afraid our wives will listen to it and then it will be over so we haven't done it we haven't done that but i, I, uh, I can attest to I, I can tell you mike and i's wives they don't listen to the show so mine doesn't either. i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad yeah uh yeah so that's just the financial part of it but hounds are uh and being a houndsman is um one of those things that you either get it or you don't, you know, some people get bitten by the, the small game hunting bugs. Some people become bird hunters. Uh, some people become deer hunters and that is their passion. That's what they really live for. And it's no different with houndsmen. You know, why would I want to, I mean, when I go on a hunting trip, I look like the, the clamp it's from the Beverly Hillbillies rolling down the road. I've got coolers strapped to the truck. I'm pulling a trailer with us side by side. I've got dogs in the dog box, you know, just the logistics of moving from here to I'm headed to New Mexico here for the, the early bear season. And it's a major undertaking to move all of that equipment. You know, you got tracking equipment, you got vet meds on board, you got dog food, you got food for camp, all of this stuff that you're, you're hauling along and you're like, why in the world would you do that? It actually is a burden at times. You know, it's not as easy as just pulling off at the, at the, um, motel and spending the night a lot of times because you've got dogs in the truck. And if the weather doesn't permit, then you're going to have somebody, you know, some fur mama calling and saying, your dog shouldn't be in the truck. Uh, well, it's 65 degrees out here right now and they're outside of dogs, you know, so it, there are some there are some things that it takes to to actually embrace the lifestyle and that's what i really think it is it's a lifestyle where we have to promote and and work at it every day and some people get it and some people don't well and i just want to add a little bit to that from my perspective i agree where you said it's a 365 day a year job but i would also argue it's almost nearly a 24 7 job as well i mean you almost have to look at your dogs very similar to if you had children i mean you know you just can't wake up every morning and tell your kid hey good morning and then just forget about it for the rest of the day i mean there's there's times where you know the dogs need your attention they need to be able to 
you know, exercise, they need to have the correct nutrition, they need to actually be able to be correctly, like I call the term modulated, where, you know, there's times where they need to be psychologically either stimulated or corrected, etc, just so that you do have a really good companion or set of companions that work together. And so that relationship requires time as well, not, you know, in, in the aspect of every day. So mm -hmm. uh, it is a commitment, for sure. Yeah, it's a it's a deal where uh, you can't just put them in a glass case and in case of war break glass type thing. You know, it's it's not anything like that. If you want, I've got a Yog Terrier, and uh, Yog Terrier is German hunting terrier. They're a very versatile dog. They're also very well known for being psychotic and uh, hard to control and things like that. Uh, mine is with me all the time he's he's loose with me all the you know he runs around the place if i'm working on the deck he's not very far away uh, you have to have that relationship and any working dog that's out there if they don't have a job and you don't find a job for them to do they are going to find a job for you and that could be causing havoc on the neighbor's chickens that could be chewing the siding off your house that could be chasing cars they are going to find a job so just finding and having that dedication to put your energy into to working those dogs and giving them the job that they're bred to do is a major time investment. Well, and I'm going to chime in and say this too, is because, again, I'm not shaming people, but too often individuals don't have that perspective when they get the dog and when the dog, and, I'm gonna, and I shouldn't even say it this way, but when the, I'm going to almost had misbehave, but when the dog expresses a behavior that is not desirable, the first knee jerk reaction is to blame the dog. And literally, I'm going to say it out loud is that I'm saying 99.9% .9 of the time, it's the owner's fault. And so exactly. you should not punish your dog when the dog is exhibiting a behavior that you is undesirable that you do not want. Literally, it's your fault for not putting in the time and understanding it. I mean, so to be able to work with dogs at this level, or with these dogs that have high energy, uh, high intelligence that need high stimulation, you've got to bring it yourself. I mean, so literally, if the dog isn't performing up to your expectations, you better look inward first. You know, one of the, that's interesting you bring that up. Um, one of the dogs that's very common in our community is, is guys that, that hunt wild hogs is the American pit bull terrier, you know, and the pit bull doesn't need any help in bad press and what i've seen from the pip i've never seen a hunting pit bull i mean these dogs are babies but they've got a job and they they absolutely they're very affectionate uh they're very purpose driven when things go bad they can go bad and it's serious i mean if if your chihuahua bites you you know okay if a pit bull decides you hit that trigger mechanism in them and they start, then it can be catastrophic and nobody wants that. But it's often almost every, every news story you see, it's the, the dog that has been adopted or misplaced in a home where, where people didn't understand what they were really getting themselves into. And I tell people this all the time, cause I have a, I have a bulldog here. I don't let, I don't load a pistol and hand it to a five-year-old and tell him to go play with it. 
you know, there has to be some respect. There have to be some ground rules. There has to be that side of it. And I don't care what do kind of dog it is. It can be beyond a yog terrier. You've got to, you've got to understand that Malinois, I saw them, they've been getting crazy and that's not a, well, I do know people that use Malinois for, to hunt hogs and track deer and stuff like that. But again, a highly specialized breed that is misunderstood. And people think, well, I think it'd be cool because I watched the Navy SEAL show and I really like that dog. You know, bad combination, bad idea. Yeah, it can be a challenge as someone who had at the same time a blue healer and a red tick hound in the house at the same time, especially yeah. the blue healer. You know, she always was looking for a job to do and she always gave herself a job which quite frankly can be a bit annoying. And then it got really tough whenever she was, she got older and wasn't as mobile and she still wanted to work. Uh, it just creates a tough situation. So yes, you definitely mm -hmm. need to know what you're getting into. And uh, speaking of getting into things, I want to jump into this issue. And so we do hear from people that have questions about dogs here at the NDA, but the question is typically, can you all jump in and help us stop uh, deer hunting with dogs? <laughs> that's typically what we hear uh, from people who have questions about dogs because their issue is they've got people that are, you know, as they describe it, of course, we don't know every individual situation, but dogs are running rampant on their property and they put all this work and time and effort into it and, and they don't want, they want it stopped. Now, of course, you know, the, the devil is in the details of each individual situation. And so, yeah, we hear that a, a fair amount. And so one of the things we wanted to make sure we talked about here today is, uh, first of all, I, I'm, I've actually sort of a two-part question here. You're dealing with hound hunting and, and dog hunting of all different types, and you mentioned a handful already, and there's there's more out there. So in terms of deer hunting with dogs, how popular is that really? And also, um, you try to bridge uh, the communication gap between deer hunters and hound hunters. So just give us sort of a snapshot of how that's going generally. So how popular is deer hunting with dogs? And have you had some success with trying to bridge that gap? Well, I'll start off by saying that, that I've deer hunted with hounds a couple of times. So I'm no means an expert. I'm not a, a deer dog houndsman on that subject. I I've had the opportunity to interact and, and work with, with houndsmen that are deer hunters, uh, over the years. It's, it's a su Southern tradition. Um, I, I used to know this, let's think about it, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, I believe are the only states that, that allow hounds to be used in the pursuit of white-tailed deer, not, not talking about deer recovery, you know, like is a popular thing among deer hunters in the, in the Midwest and other places. So, um, it is a regional thing. A lot of times it's no doubt a very, uh, tra traditional thing with, with these guys with it's a, it's a Southern tradition. And so oftentimes it's misunderstood. You know, I think a lot of times as people we try to put ourselves in silos or we try to identify, uh, as a certain type of a person. And, and when we don't fully understand what 
who those people are, then, then we come to conclusions about who they are. Just like I talked about with the, uh, you know, taking control of the narrative for houndsmen. So I think a lot of times these, these houndsmen are considered, uh, uneducated or, um, maybe not the most ethical types of people. And that goes for houndsmen across the board. And I'll give you a good example of how to debunk that real quick is, is I know guys that are uh, aerospace engineers. We've interviewed veterinarians. Uh, Mark Booth is an anesthesiologist, and he writes a su- he produces a Southern Hound Hunting magazine. He's a big deer hunter with hounds. Uh, so his dad was a deer hunter. His grandfather was a deer hunter. So it's it's something that uh, has been in place for a long time prior to organizations like yours that that got influence in the deep south and started developing property for stand hunting and things like that people people ran deer dogs it was a necessity for them that goes back to the times when that that area was settled so when you have that conflict from the houndsman side it's it's very deeply rooted in their identity and their traditions of the south so that did that answer part of your question? I know you have more than one. Yeah, no, I did. I think the history there is interesting, and um, you know, it's important for people to to understand. As sort of someone sitting in Pennsylvania, for example, we the idea of hunting deer with dogs is completely foreign. Mm-hmm. But of course, in Virginia, it's something that's legal and not foreign there. And that's you know one state that we do hear from. I do want to point out too, because some people uh, ask us, "What is our policy on hound hunting?" With, for deer using hounds to hunt deer and we don't have one i mean our policy is we don't get involved in the issue of method of take or method of pursuit necessarily but we rely on state wildlife agencies to do that now we do weigh in on you know if it becomes a, a property um you know a pro- our landowner rights situation we have general obviously positions on that we, we, we advocate for those types of things but specifically as it relates to hunting deer with hounds, we don't have a policy. Now, if it if if there were to be a scientific study come out tomorrow that said, you know, hound hunting, hound hunting deer is pushing deer to the brink of, you know, dis- extinction or something you know, along right. those lines, we would, we would certainly have something to say, but that's not the case. There's not a biological reason or influence. So that's why we don't really get involved, but we do get asked a lot and understand the situation. So in, in your work, and trying to bridge that gap. Do you have success stories? Uh, are you are you hopeful? And, and it doesn't have to even be deer hunters, by the way. It could be, I mean, I know I said this on your podcast. I, on occasion, will have uh, hounds or other dogs show up on my trail cameras on my place. And you can obviously tell the ones that they're, when they're hounds, that are hunting because they've got the call, the GPS collars on them. But it's mm-hmm. rare. I mean, it happens maybe two, three times a year. And I don't, you know, get too bent out of shape about it. Um, so I see it, I understand what's going on. So what, what has your success been? Well, I think there's, I think there is a lot of opportunity here for people to find common ground in the hunting community. You know, in 2023 with things like Onyx, you mentioned the GPS tracking systems, you know, there really isn't any any reason that unless I'm out of state hunting, of course, you know, if I'm hunting locally around home where 
you know, 80% of probably, well, maybe not that much anymore. <laughs> you know, used to, it was a hundred percent of my hunting was done here locally. I knew everybody and a simple stop on a Saturday afternoon is so beneficial when, when you can pull in, like, let me explain it this way. During our firearms deer season here in Indiana, it used to be all kinds of deer camps, just all over the, all over the County, all over the area. And houndsmen typically we were, we were coon hunting. We, we did not hunt. I wouldn't, I still don't turn a dog loose on opening weekend of firearms season. I'm usually deer hunting myself, so I can't do both. Uh, however, uh, if I would simply take the time to pull into the deer camp, you know, at noon, guys are usually back eating a sandwich, stuff like that. Just sit down with them, talk to them, introduce yourself and, and, and get to know them. When you start putting faces with, with names and things like that, and people, people see who you are and can relate to you that can accomplish so much. And so I think, I think, and we've talked a lot about this on our, our podcast, we've done 378 episodes now. And I think it would be, I've spent hours talking about this, meeting somebody at two o'clock in the morning when they're in flip-flops and their underwear is probably not the best time to build <laughs> community relations. It's always a lot better when, when you can go to them on their, on their time and, and, and build, start building that relationship then. And I've done this numerous times around here. We had, we had a particular landowner here locally who just, he owned 20 acres by a huge farm surrounded him. It was a traditional place before he built his house in there. We hunted that spot too, but I got calls all the time from him about hounds and, and he threatened people and, and. Oh, you know what it took? I hunted, I ended up hunting his place and I'll tell you what it took. He said, Hey, I don't like the raccoons coming up on my porch and eating the, mm. eating the cat food. I don't like cleaning the, the feces off the deck, off my front porch. I don't care that people are hunting raccoons, but I deserve the respect and the courtesy to know that you're going to be here. So if you'll simply call me, you can hunt here all you want. And that's all it took. And I kept his number on my phone, speed dial. If I left the house, I didn't care if I was headed that way or not. You know, a lot of times it's when you're out hunting, then you might stop here. You might stop there. And then on the way home, you'll hit another spot and then roll into the house. So I would just call him, you know, if I had any idea that I was going to be hunting in the area, because even though my dogs are all broke to respond to the, the tone on, on my GPS, my my garmin gps system if i hit the the audible tone man they 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 come to me yeah. there's still All a right. chance there's still a chance that they're going to get there and i don't want to run I'm, I'm not running the risk of of uh running a good spot to hunt because i was too lazy to or too embarrassed or too shy or too selfish to make a phone call okay so let's back up just a little bit for the people that might not be you know familiar with dogs so in regards to, let's talk about the GPS collars uh, for a second, is that um, dog collars nowadays have a tremendous ability to be able to do a bunch of things. And number one, they can tell you where your dog's at for the most part. Number two, they can provide your dog 
a certain amount of uh, stimulation so you can exercise control to make sure your dog's doing what you want it to do. And then uh, also some of them have tone and the tone that Chris was talking about is that we, we condition our dogs. It's no different than bird dogs using a whistle, but when your dogs are so far away that they can't audibly hear a whistle, you train them to the tone. So they know that that's, that means that they're, they're, the alpha or the owners telling them you need to recall you need to come back and check in with mm -hmm. me and so it's just another version of control uh for these dogs when they're cast out so far away um secondarily chris you used a term that um i knew what it meant but you you use the term free casting if you just want to make sure like when you in your opening there when you just actually um introduced yourself. So if you can actually explain like free casting and, and maybe just a couple uh, short blurbs about, you know, what hunting with hounds for coon, you know, or, you know, fox or cougar or bear, like really entails. Hello, friends. I want to take a brief break from the show to tell you about First Light and their Camo for Conservation program. Hunters were the original conservationists and First Light is proud to build on this legacy with their Camo for Conservation initiative. A portion of every sale of their Spectre Whitetail Camouflage will be passed on to the National Deer Association to help us support science-based deer management and advocate for healthy deer populations. And as the official apparel sponsor of the Field to Fork program, First Light is committed to protecting our hunting heritage by educating the next generation of hunter conservationists. In addition to the great work the company does giving back to conservation, I can personally attest to the quality of their products as I've been wearing First Light camo for several years. It is phenomenal. In addition to looking great, First Light has a layering system for any weather conditions you might encounter, helping you stay on stand longer and more comfortably. For more information, visit firstlight.com. Freecasting is a term that, that we use when we actually loose the hounds, you know, it's, it's, uh, your dog's off leash at that point. Uh, he's out there. His job is to go find the quarry and, and take that track and end up catching or, you know, baying or treeing, whatever term you want to use here. A lot of people wouldn't understand if I said treeing cause it's, you know, but if I say bay, they might get that. Um, that's, that's their job. So they're off leash. I'm watching them on a Garmin handheld used to, when I first started hunting, there wasn't any of that stuff. I didn't even have a tracking system. Hmm. Uh, the early 1980s, they were out, but, uh, anyway, so that's what free casting is. And, um, uh, so typically what happens, there's a few different ways to effectively hunt with hounds in the West. If you're hunting in the snow country, then, then typically you're, you're driving the roads until you find a, a lion track that you're going to, you know, evaluate and decide whether or not that's a, a line you want to pursue for one. And then also, uh, whether it's, it's the track is, is fresh enough or in a state that your dogs can actually trail it from those tracks and they're using their nose to do that. It's scent. So it's all, it's all scent dependent and. That's a whole different podcast. We've done tons of them on scent work and how dogs nose worked. But so that's, that's how you get started on a hunt. Now, now coon hunting, fox hunting, coyote hunting, uh, is, can be a little bit different. And I don't mean to say that, that bear hunting and lion hunting is not the same because there's several people that, 
that uh, will go out and and free cast dogs to lion hunt. They don't necessarily need a track to go out and search. So free casting is simply a dog out searching for the target quarry. There you have it. And so one more question that I think that people find interesting that I, I find ridiculously interesting because I, one of my bird dog training buddies, Phil Urban, was a huge beagle guy, did it com competitively, et cetera, for rabbits. And what really amazed me about it, and he's the one that taught me so much about hounds, was the fact that your pack and, you know, most hound owners, they, they refer to their, their group of dogs as a pack, but different dogs have different jobs and different dogs are better at certain aspects of their hunting task than others. And um, I found that ridiculously interesting. If you can just kind of, you know, summarize and touch on that just for the, the interest of the listener. Yeah. So, um, and this is kind of a unique thing. It's more for what we consider big game hunting in the hound world. It's not necessarily uh, uh, a, a necessity for for coon hunting, but it definitely is. You mentioned beagling. Uh, you know, dogs have different talents, just like people have different talents. They've got uh, they've got different jobs to do. It's it's like a it's like putting a football team together. You know, a lineman's not going to make an effective quarterback and quarterbacks can't block and kickers can't tackle usually, you know, <laughs> usually. So, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very important to understand that, that if a person, you see a person that's rolling down the road and he's got six hounds on his, in his truck. Each one of those dogs has got a got a specific job that that they do. Obviously, as houndsmen, we want as many dogs that can do multiple tasks and are good at multiple tasks. However, reality states that you know some dogs are better at trailing. Some some dogs are better at uh, they're faster. Maybe they they process the track and the scent faster, so they can put more pressure on the game. Uh, some dogs are what we can call tree dogs that that have the ability to locate game up in trees and they're going to stay there until the hunter comes. Uh, the houndsman comes to to uh, evaluate the animal, whether it's going to be taken or not. So there's a lot of different aspects to it and a lot of different jobs that that dogs do. And every dog's different, just like every person's different. And but the overall desire is to have have dogs that that are good at an at a multitude of tasks and are pretty pretty efficient at it yeah i shared the story on your podcast chris about my red tick hound that learned to retrieve ducks right i mean that that was uh, generates a lot of interest when i bring that up and show people pictures and yeah i always say if a dog loves you it'll do whatever you ask it to Mm -hmm. if, it, if it has some reasonable amount of intelligence so uh we'll add that in there i'm I'm still hung up by the way that that comment about flip-flops and underwear kind of hit close to home for me so <laughs> kind of <laughs> caught up there but uh another thing though that hit close to home is you were you were talking about the gps collars and whatnot i remember back when we were hunting raccoons with hounds i mean you there was just a certain feel to it and you may you may have some of this conversation that goes on around camps today where the the old timers will say well they just these young bucks they just they don't do it like we used to and it was just a lot of feel and listening and you could tell by the bark of your dog 
you could tell we could tell anyway at least we thought we could what a what a dog was on like if it was on a, a coon trail and all of a sudden picked up a bear trail you picked up a, a completely different sound or if it for you know for a short distance decided mm-hmm. it wanted to chase a deer you would always know up oh, that's a deer let's call him back or something along those lines so i think do you hear that just just sort of on the fun side of things like the joking around camp like oh you kids you you don't know how good or how easy you have it now compared to how we used to do it all the time i mean it's <laughs> it's like a rite of passage and my, my my thought about that is it's like it's like the only thing just because you're old doesn't mean you're more wise or you're tougher the only thing you got to do to get old is wake up every day so <laughs> well put. Uh, there there is no there is no you know magic formula that when you hit 70 all of all of a sudden you're all knowing uh you've Can seen you tell my dad stuff. that by the way dad if you're oh. listening i just you know, hope you heard that yeah yeah <laughs> but you know my response to that is everything that we're doing post man catching game with his bare hands and his teeth and and whatever who's who's going to be able to speak to those days you know here's a here's me 54 years old and i didn't have tracking equipment i you know back when i started hunting you know we didn't have range finders and and you know elevated what was a tree saddle you know we just climb shimmy up in a tree and take a nap on a big branch you know well guess what fred flintstone was doing it way longer than i was thousands of years ago and that's one of the things that affects us a lot as houndsmen is this idea that hunting with hounds is not fair chase hunting with hounds is one of the is is the oldest documented form of hunting on the face of the earth Hmm. you know we're talking spears and dogs so from that time forward look at everything that's been developed gunpowder uh, firearms, uh, you know, projectiles such as bows and arrows and things like that. So everything moving forward from that point, well, really the point where, uh, as my friend Tracy Jones says, uh, when man had to defend on nothing but his hands and his brain and his teeth to catch game, everything from that point forward has been in a, a technological improvement that that affects hunting and how we hunt yeah well put i think of a hundred things from a deer hunting perspective i mean the the doctor and we're all similar age on the show here today and the doctor and i can go back to when we had no choice but to just hunt on the ground to the point now where he and i both use tree saddles we use trail cameras we use cellular cameras Mm -hmm. we've embraced that technology obviously not everybody else does but uh, that that could be an entirely different podcast, but hey, I want to I want to close with this because I don't want to keep you too long, Chris. And this is an important aspect that I think needs to be put out there for people to think about. And so, uh, this idea of conflict between people who have deer hunting properties and the, it all worked up when a dog shows up on it, and not everybody. First of all, people make mistakes; they don't do it on purpose. But there are also some bad actors out there too, and I want to I want to give you the opportunity to to say that uh, what you're doing is the opposite of bad actors, right? You are trying to provide a platform and a conversation for your folks to uh, do right by all the land they're hunting on, so that they can have a good experience and not that mm-hmm. not to also infringe on somebody else's experience. So just take a second and tell us about 
that aspect of your work and that you don't represent bad actors. And in fact, you do the opposite. You try to educate and bring people together. I spent most of my adult life arresting the bad actors. Hmm. So I'm very, I'm very passionate about that, but it's also a deal with our podcast. We are trying to educate people that, um, just because the landowner is not there doesn't mean that it's public property to hunt. You know, that's, that's an infringement at that point. Just, just as much as if I looked out my front front door here and saw somebody sitting in a tree stand in my front yard, um, that's, there's gotta be mutual respect on both sides. Now, now I would say that, that when you're talking about public land, I've seen, I've seen people go into public forums and ask, Hey, you know, rabbit season comes in in Indiana on October. I think it comes in October 1st on state property. Uh, so they're looking for where is a good place that I can go rabbit hunting. And I've seen deer hunters pile on and say, well, that's archery season. You shouldn't be on public. You know, you mm -hmm. should respect us. Yeah. And so, so there's gotta be a real ex expectation here. If it's public property, public land, national forest, whatever, anybody that's out there hunting legally has got as much right to it as anybody else. And simply because it interferes with that day, your day of hunting that day, or what you perceive as interferment, uh, interference does not, does not give you the right to be a jerk, you know, and, and cast stones there. Now, when we're talking about landowner conflict, one of the biggest conflicts that I've seen has been from, uh, the the deer hunter that that buys the property and and maybe he owns 50 acres that has been surrounded by you talked about deer hunting in the south you know on, those clubs down there can range from 2500 acres to 10,000 acres and then you've got a guy that bought 50 acres right here on the edge of it to, and he's doing his deer improvement, his habitat improvement, all that stuff. He he absolutely 100% has the expectation of privacy there and being respected. But he also should have the expectation that I bought property that's surrounded by a hunting club that's been deer hunted in the deep south for the last 220 years. You know, so... Uh, is it really an interruption? Is it really, is it really going to, if, unless, unless that you've got a group coming through there that, that are just tromping all over your property and not respecting it, you know, rabbit hunters are real easy to, to spot when they're, when they're on property that they're not, you know, that they're hunting. I'm not going to say not supposed to be on, but when they're hunting, because they're moving through the air with their dogs or kicking breasts or doing all this stuff. So, um, I think there has to be a little bit of understanding and respect on both sides. It, it really has to be the, what, what I've got invested for me is something because I'm passionate about and what somebody else is invested in and their hunting opportunities is value to them. So we have to have mutual respect just because, and mistakes happen. That's the other thing. Mistakes happen. Um, one thing that I tell my, my coon hunting community is if you're, if your dog gets in somewhere like it, some States have what's called a right to retrieve law where you can enter property, retrieve your dog and walk out. That means you're walking in to get the dog. It doesn't mean you're walking in, leashing the dog up, standing back, shining the tree, doing anything else. I tell everybody, it's like you walk in, you get your dog and you come out. 
if it's legal in your area to do that. That at that point, there's no there's no question. I'm here to retrieve my dog. I'm not here to look and see if he's got a raccoon or a bear or whatever he's got. I'm walking in, grabbing a dog, and I'm coming out. Yeah. That's good information. You actually described my exact situation. My land is less than a hundred acres and I border 5,000 acres of, uh, of public land. And so I knew, I knew when I bought it that I would uh, have to be comfortable with the occasional hound or even sometimes even just a, you know, a, a, a deer hunter walking and gets twisted up. It's big mm-hmm. country, you know, could get twisted up and end up there. So I think intent is important too. And I think we all have to be reasonable about that. So Chris, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I know the doctor and I really enjoyed it and we were excited to have this conversation. Uh, and folks, you can learn more about Hansman XP at HansmanXP.com. They also have a Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube pages. And I encourage you to check that out and learn a little bit more about uh, what, what those folks are doing. And so Chris, thank you again for coming on today. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. The only way we're going to move our hunting culture forward is when we come to the table like this and sit down and discuss issues. That's the only way it can be done. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, that's why we agreed to be on each other's shows. So that's right. Uh, all right, man. Thank you. As I've gotten older, Mike, and make no mistake about it, I've gotten older. Uh, as I'm looking at us on the screen, there's a lot more gray than we used to have. Um, I've learned that it's important to learn both sides of an issue. When you're younger, you know, you have your feelings and your feelings are the right feelings and like you don't care what anybody has to say, right? But as you mature and you understand uh, relationships, conversation, go along to get along sometimes, you learn to hear both sides. And I thought it was important to have someone like Chris on the show to talk about this issue of hounds and how sometimes uh, they're hard to keep exactly on your property and so that there are conflicts and confusion. And so I don't know. I thought he did a pretty good job of of explaining what his group is all about, why they exist, and and that conflict. And I agree. And I think, and I'm not sure, and, and I don't know if you can correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but there was a, a U.S. Army general. I think his name was uh, Stanley McAllister, and and he talks a lot about learning your opponent, but also understanding your opponent's viewpoint. Because when you can understand your component, your opponent, I should say, and not that this is a uh, hounds versus deer hunters, you know, tit for tat, but basically the point that I'm trying to make is when you can understand the person that you're having a conversation with from the other side of the table, you, you better know how to communicate to that person and you can easily more, more easily, I should say, in most cases resolve an issue. And so basically listening is a key component of that. And that's something that we teach our students for things like debate and things like that, where you have to be a really good listener, but really, really, it's not just hearing what they're saying. It's actually listening and trying to understand what they're saying and putting yourself in their shoes so that you can better bridge a communication gap through a common thread. So communication or these conversations, I believe, are always important. Yeah, I think you, you you said that you know extremely well there. I mean, it's that's what this is about. I mean, this is um, you know I, I want to make sure people aren't confused though. We're not saying yeah you know, that we're not we're not belittling a person's property rights. Okay, I mean the opposite of that is true. I mean, you and I are landowners. I'm sure many of our listeners are. 
Um, you you own that. You control it. You can allow what does or does not happen there. 100%. The National Deer Association supports that 100%. And so uh, we are not saying that, that that is not true. So to be clear about that. And so, yeah, if you don't, if, if you're extremely upset that a dog has crossed onto your land, even for a minute, you have a right to be upset about that. It is your land. Uh, I think what we're trying to do here, though, is say, hey, let's just try to work together, be open-minded in most cases. And this is the big one for me. If somebody is not trying to do something directly to upset you, that's that's a completely different, that's an accident. Okay, accidents happen. If somebody, though, is blatantly trying to do something or, or ignoring, I mean, Mike, you have some experience with this, you sure. know, dog owners ignoring uh, your very polite approach, um, then that's a different issue altogether. And so that's what we're saying here. For sure. I mean, I own dogs. I've owned dogs my entire life, bird dogs in particular. And I've had an issue at my place in New York with my neighbor's dogs for the past 10 years. And the crazy thing is, it's not until hunting season when I believe the, we start to get leaf drop that those dogs, for some reason, mentally see that their world has expanded and they start wandering through my place. And so I've had to have conversations with my neighbors. And initially it was met to literally crickets. But, you know, I think we've finally come to an understanding. And hopefully, you know, as I'm up there much more frequently now, that problem will be rectified. But at the end of the day, like you said, these events, especially when they're not directly targeting a malicious result, in a week's time, two weeks' time, even sometimes in two days' time, everything you know kind of returns to normal. I mean, I've been in multiple situations where I've been on the tree stand on public land and had bird dogs with their hunters come through, beagles run through and i will tell you that out of all of those times that happened just shy of half i have actually had an opportunity to shoot a deer whether i've chose to harvest that deer or not but just by them being out there and doing their thing it kind of shifts the deer around so they start to move a little bit they've put them in a situation where it's actually benefited me so we have to look at all aspects of what goes on and I think maybe not be so hypersensitive at times. And that's coming from a dog owner, someone that runs dogs and a bow hunter and a landowner. Yeah, deer, what people I think sometimes fail to realize, and I'm guilty of this too, they're constantly being bothered by something. I mean, they're, it's their nature to be bothered by things in case you haven't noticed. They don't barely take a step without a wind check and a sight check and a, they're just not careless, right? right? And so I've walked right past deer that were satisfied that I wasn't after them. I've driven past them uh, on, you know, like an ATV. I have had dogs come through and deer come through. You know, coyotes are out there constantly. So again, not belittling conflict because there's real conflict at times out there and it's not acceptable. Uh, but just talking about deer behavior in general, they're just, they're constantly bothered by something. And uh, that's just the way they live their lives. And it doesn't take a long, as long as it's not a continual, you know, the same bother over and over and over again, they'll respond to that differently. But sure. uh, at any rate, yeah. So anyway, good conversation. And you and I are still continuing it. So it tells you that it moved us as well. Hey, Mike, jumping away from that issue. I don't know if you've been looking at my social media, but my battle with the knotweed continues. You're making a dent in it. I, I appreciate it. But the thing is, I find interesting is that 
you know, we talk about how it's not really the, the best habitat, but you're finding the fact that there's, there's deer that are bedding in there probably to isolate themselves or whether that's more of like a, a thermal thing. I mean, I don't know how much wind moves through there, but it definitely takes the sun from beating off them as thick as some of those beds that you're finding. So how many beds have you found so far? Well, I have found, I'm going to say at least five, but I'm going to tell you They're well-worn beds. They're down to the dirt. I think it's probably the same deer and I'm certain it's a buck because it's a single bed and it's a big track. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm like, okay, am I taking down the bedding area of a, you know, one of the mature bucks on my place, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, And I have many times as I've gone down there, I've had deer bust out of there. I never get to see what deer it is. But the other thing that's going on is I have good apples on the trees right there. So I, I literally think this deer, and maybe it's more than one deer, but this deer is laying there and just getting up and gorging on apples and then going back and laying back down, which would also be a strategy of a mature deer to do that, not have to move far to feed. But anyway, not weed. I've always looked at that spot and luckily it's isolated to that one spot on my place. And in my mind, I've always thought this is not a huge issue because it's isolated to one area and I'll just kind of work at it. Well, when you get in there and you are actually cutting individual stems and then spraying those stems, which is what you do to get rid of it. You want to wait till August, whenever it's kind of flowering out, you go in and you cut it within the first couple nodes of the, the base of the stem, and then you spray it. You can, you can do other things. You can do a surface surface application. You can do an injection, but this is how I've chosen to do it. It's a good workout and uh, humbling experience. But um, anyway, it's slow moving. You don't realize just how many freaking stems you have. And so I, I've been working at this probably four or five times already. And I would say I'm probably maybe a little better than halfway through. Yeah, and it's it's a big undertaking. But going back to your, the sense that you're thinking that you might be destroying a, a potential buck's bedding area, I think in your situation, what I think we need to include in the conversation is the fact that you have created many more potential bedding sites on your property. So it's different that it's not like you're going in there and you're just, your place is a wide open park like property. And then you're going in there and taking the only bedding area away. So basically you're just shifting them to areas where you want them and where you know you have created bedding. And so I think in this situation, if if everything else stays in order, that deer is just going to shift. Yeah. And my priority is to fix the habitat. I do not want Japanese knotweed on my place. And I'd like to reestablish the orchard that was there. There's some producing trees now, but I've already got some others planted. And I'd like to just reestablish that as a, as a more quality beneficial area. So I'll continue to work on that. If you're interested, follow Follow my social media. I've been putting up a bunch of Instagram stories as I'm out there working on it. I probably should have created a, a highlight reel of working on knotweed, but uh, anyway, labor of love. Hey, other things, this is going to be food plot weekend, Mike. So I am planning, now, as we're sitting here talking, it, we had a nice, beautiful, long rain all morning, and I'm sitting here thinking, I wish I'd have planted yesterday. <laughs> but you know, you when you plant, you're chasing rain anyway. It doesn't really matter when you get it in the ground. So I'm, I'm aiming for, for uh, Saturday. Sounds good. I'm probably going to hold off a little bit longer just because of the plannings I have going in, but uh, mine will be soon. And it's going to, as you said, it's going to be rain contingent. Yep. So it's that time of year. I see a lot of people on their social media uh, putting out their pictures that they're out there doing it. Some people already have food plots in and uh, good for you. You're ahead of the game a little bit. 
Uh, one thing I do need to do though, it's not, it doesn't have to be all work all the time. And I ran into that is I need to check out some stand locations and make sure everything is in order and get to get to be thinking about that because you don't want to be waiting until a day before the season starts to be doing that stuff. I agree. Yep. So got to be on that. And finally, this is, this is my breaking news, Mike. So I have gone back to shooting my bow without a peep sight. Okay. And I want you to know that I got permission to do that from the ranch fairy, Troy Fowler. Now you don't, you don't know who the ranch fairy is. Look him up on YouTube. When you see him, you'll probably recognize him. He's certainly a character. I've met him. Um, but he's one of these crazy guys that just sort of tells you, tells you how it is or tell, he tells you how he sees it, whether or not that's how it is or not is debatable. However, um, yeah, when I used to shoot a, a bow, I'm talking a compound bow. I never shot with a peep sight and it wasn't until later on that everyone said, Oh, you got to have a peep sight. So I put one in, but as my eyesight has changed, I have always struggled with it. And so recently when I was shooting my bow, um, I decided I'm taking this thing out and I want to shoot without it. And I see essentially zero difference in my accuracy without it. Now that's me. Now I know I understand all the arguments for why you should have one and they're good arguments. I mean, your, your eye is never going to be more aligned with the string than when you're looking right through it. I totally get that. Uh, but it has helped my vision issue with trying to shoot through the peep sight. So it's working for me. I don't know if you've ever toyed with that mic or not. Surely though, with you being um, substantially older than I am, <laughs> And yeah. I will take that punishment. Yes, no, go ahead. You, uh, you're not that much older than me, but you've certainly shot without a, a peep sight, and you shoot a bunch of traditional. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I'm curious. Well, my thoughts are I, I have a really good shot process now, and it's I've shot. I'm shooting the best I've shot my entire archery career over the past. What's it been? Probably probably six, seven years. I mean, I'm. I am tight, tight. I mean, I just have a certain level of confidence with what I have. And so when I feel that good, I don't like to fiddle around with too much, but I will say that as I've aged and my eyes have aged and I've tried a, a couple of different products to help me out, it's, I do notice that it doesn't come as fluid or as easy as it used to. I have to take a little bit more time with it. And that adds to my shot process, like a few microseconds or whatever. But at the end of the day, when I shoot traditional and just have both eyes open, it is a much more enjoyable practice session. But when it comes right down to it, you know, when I'm in the woods and I want that peep sight, I, I want to know exactly when I come to full anchor and begin my process, there's just something when you're going through your shot process and you're checking the boxes and everything is there and you know, it's time to, to full send and you feel good about that. So I, for me, that's where I'm at. I'm still comfortable enough with my ability to see through my peep sight that it's going to stay. Yep. And I think you said something there that's the most important thing is it's what, what are you comfortable with? And that's what you have to find. And I think it's okay to experiment and do different things. Believe me, when I took that peep out and started shooting, um, it, I would have put it right back in had I felt like that it was influencing my shooting. But that's an experiment, right? When I experimented, it worked. And uh, one thing, this is interesting. I was surprised at how much quicker it made my bow by taking that peep sight out. Like I, I had to readjust my sight because I was hitting high. I didn't expect that just by taking a peep sight out. Does that surprise you at all? I have heard similar things about adding weight. It just, we're just going to talk the term weight to your string 
uh, and how that affects the bow's performance. So I'm not uh, an expert in that, but I have heard that and I have not experienced it firsthand. So I think I'm just going to end my comment there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm only, I'm down to shooting a 65 pound bow. I mean, I used to shoot 70 or even more than that. And as I get older, it's just more comfortable for me. So you have to adjust your pins a little bit more. I, mean, I could shoot easily 30 yards, one pin back in the day. Nowadays, I, I can't really do that with the poundage I'm shooting. So uh, yeah, I definitely noticed a difference there. But hey, I'm curious about our listeners' thoughts. If you have thoughts about shooting a peep or not, check out the Ranch Fairies. Uh, and you know, he doesn't give me anything, obviously, to say this, but check out his little YouTube video about a peep set. I thought it was interesting. And uh, his delivery is always uh, is always something to behold. So check that out, uh, Mike. With you heading back, I mean, what's what's first on your list as far as prep for deer season? I have to check my plots, and I'm going to, as I said before, I have uh, quite a few cameras out. So I'm going to pull cards and see if there is anything wandering around my place that's going to tickle my fancy. Love it. Love it. I'm getting some good pictures. I send them to you on the regular. You're probably annoyed by me, but uh, I'm sure. No, I'll be not getting... at all. Keep sending them. Okay. Uh, I'm sure I'll be getting some from you here shortly. So, hey, folks, we've got some NDA announcements before we close up the show here. Some important stuff I want to make sure you're aware of. Hey, I want to point out uh, recent hire, Jennifer Wisniewski has joined our team as chief marketing officer. It's the first time we've actually had a person directly responsible for marketing at NDA, and she's going to uh, help us get the word out to more people. And uh, it just reminded me to say, uh, go to the NDA website, deerassociation.com, and we actually have under our About tab, you can see all of our staff there and see the people of NDA, and I encourage you to reach out to them. You see their title. Maybe you're a young person. I, I just had this conversation last night with uh, with a guy at baseball practice. You know, He was telling me what his son is wanting to do when he gets out of high school and was asking me about jobs. Maybe you're a young person, or maybe you have a son or daughter that is interested in this field. Look at the job title. Reach out to the staff. Everybody is super friendly on the NDA team and they'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, or, you know, it's a, it's ask NDA anything every day, all the time here. So I, I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, we just had a successful deer steward two course in South Carolina. And I'm asking you if you're somebody who has always wanted to do deer steward. So maybe you've never done even deer steward one. Well, that's all online. So that's a good entree. Check out the deer steward program. And then if you want to do deer steward two, like we just did in South Carolina, get it on your radar screen and be looking for when we post our locations and dates for next year's classes, because those are in person. And, you know, we had nearly 50 people put through this last course, and it was by all accounts, uh, a great time and a lot of learning. You know, the doctor and I are both through the Dear Steward 1 and 2 program, so we can attest to that. And so, again, get that on your radar screen, make it a bucket list item. I think you'll find it's well worth it. I also want to mention we're currently running our Tracker 800SX UTV side-by-side -side raffle. Man, used to just be like, you know what? Timmy has a dirt bike. Now it's like Timmy <laughs> has the, the mini bike. Yeah, days? yeah, Timmy has a mini bike. Now Timmy has a whatever, whatever, SX, you know, whatever. So it's hard to keep all this straight. But anyway, this is a pretty cool machine. It was one of our most popular it has been our, one of our most popular raffles over the last few years. We appreciate our friends at Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's for making this possible. But we only sell, Mike, we only sell 300 tickets to this thing. So you are never going to have better odds of winning a, you know, a very expensive side-by-side -side vehicle than 
than one in 300, or you can buy multiple tickets. We have multiple package options too. And you can do that while you're supporting the National Deer Association. This will sell out, okay? And we're only running this through August. So if you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I'd like to get in on that deal. Uh, get in on it now before we run out of tickets. So that's happening. Also, membership plug. Uh, become a premium member, folks, if you're not already. A premium is our paid membership. We are still offering this for 35 bucks, which was the price of our old membership. And, and so you're going to get discounts to all of uh, just about all of our companies that support us. You want to go out and buy a nice new Alps pack before hunting season? Well, you're going to get a bunch off by being an NDA member. Okay, so check that out. Check out our sponsors. Uh, go to our website, DeerAssociation.com. Click on join. And hey, if you're still not sold and you're thinking, I'd, I'd like to just be a member, but I'm not really worried about that stuff. I don't want to get into the big drawings and, and those types of things. Then you can still join for free. We have that option too. So check that out. But I will tell you, if you're a premium member, we're going to have drawings coming up. It doesn't cost you anything to get into these. If you're a premium member, you're automatically entered into these drawings. We're giving away an HHA Optimizer Light Bow Sight. I have an HHA site that I love very much and uh, can certainly speak to them. You would like one too if you're a bow hunter. Vortex Triumph 10 by 42 binoculars. Alps Outdoors Shield Bino Harness to put those binoculars in. That's just the beginning. These are upcoming giveaways that we're going to do in that category. So again, 35 bucks. Become a premium member. We'd appreciate it. Oh, that's a lot, but it's important. Hey, folks, we hope you're getting uh, busy as the new hunting season approaches, shooting, scouting, preparing food plots, other habitat work, etc. cetera. Uh, thank you so much for listening and making us part of your day and part of your preparation for the upcoming season. Catch you again next time. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.